Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 1st, 2021. Happy June, everybody. June the 1st, of course, is Pride Month, uh, a month for the celebration of one kind of diversity or another. Uh, the American president, uh, Joseph Biden, uh, recognizes LGBTQ Pride Month. He is indeed pledging more protections for uh, that community. But of course, um, uh, the issues around pride and around gender and sexuality are increasingly political in America. Uh, this piece in the Washington Post suggests that the Republicans are, quote unquote, doubling down on restricting uh, transgender Americans, restricting rights, I think. And indeed, as we speak, one of the, the most outspoken and perhaps in, in some people's mind, outrageous opponents of uh, diversity of one kind or another, the Florida uh, governor, uh, DeSantis, announced um, that he signed a controversial transgender athlete ban during his visit to Jacksonville, no doubt choosing to sign it today symbolically because it's June 1. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a special kind of day on everybody's front. One person who I think understands both sides of this debate, if that's the right word to put it, this controversy, this division in America, is my guest on the show today. Paula Stone Williams um, was in a previous life, and I'm not sure if that's the right way of putting it, um, uh, a, uh, a, a Christian uh, uh, activist uh, who led anti-LGBTQ uh, um, uh, evangelical denomination for 35 years. But um, uh, she, she or he, he was once a he, now she's a she, she has transitioned. And uh, as this headline uh, suggests, uh, uh, she has a lot to make up for. She has a new book out. Uh, As a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and patriarchy after I transitioned. It's a really interesting, very heartfelt, very authentic, deeply uh, meaningful book. And I'm thrilled, honored that she's on the show today. Um, Paula, why the division in America? Why are people so convinced on both sides about this issue? Why is it the the seemingly the defining uh, cultural division of our age of uh, of 2021 you know i think you have to go back a little bit to take a look at that i remember uh, listening to um, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, when he was on Fresh Air a couple of years ago, the sociobiologist who's been at Harvard and MIT, talking about the nine eusocial species, the nine species that have both what he calls a selfish gene and a tribal gene. And he said, interestingly, all nine of these species uniquely have a gene that's a community-based and that they'll sacrifice themselves for the sake of their community. He says eight of these species have, ev- have evolved, as you would expect. An enemy comes into the camp, they unite, defeat the enemy, some of them die, 
life goes on. He says, unfortunately, the ninth use social species has evolved in a very unfortunate way. He says, it's evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. So where no enemy exists, we create one. He says, we don't get a hold of that. We lose the species and quite possibly lose the planet. I think that's exactly what's going on right now. I think we're dealing with created enemies, particularly coming out of the evangelical community. If you take a look at the over 100 laws that are currently pending, now nine that have been passed recently, 12 pending in Texas alone, that take away transgender civil rights, all of them focused either on transgender athletes or transgender adolescents receiving hormonal care for their gender dysphoria. And you say, well, who's behind these? Well, sure enough, in every one of these states, it's a Republican legislature. But interestingly, those who voted for Trump were surveyed in all 10 swing states. Asked the question, should transgender Americans have the same civil rights as everyone else? 60% of them said yes. So it's not necessarily conservatives who are leading this, this rally against the transgender population, uh, regardless of political affiliation or age or ethnicity, 60% of them felt that transgender people should have civil rights. So who's leading this charge? Ah, yes, it's the evangelicals, 84% of whom believe the gender is immutably determined at birth. 61% of whom believe that the United States has already gone too far in guaranteeing transgender rights, and only 25% of whom have ever actually met someone who's transgender. So what I think we have create, being created is an enemy that doesn't exist. The evangelical community at this point has decided, since they lost on the issue of marriage equality, they've decided that the next best group to fight against is the transgender population. You know, I find it interesting that if you take a look at both the evangelical community or the Roman Catholic Church, they are completely 100% male-led. What are the two social issues both of those groups have chosen to focus on in our generation? Two things, a woman's right to choose and LGBTQ plus issues. And what two social issues would cost their leadership absolutely nothing to hold those positions? They're all men, so they don't have to worry about or not they get an abortion, and 97% of them are cisgender straight men. So in fact, if you want to choose a couple of subjects that cost you absolutely nothing personally, we'll pick both of those subjects instead of, let's say, oh, systemic racism or socioeconomic injustice, which actually would cost their leadership something rather significant. So I think it's just the group that they can choose at the moment. I mean, 84% of them opposed to, the, to transgender people, they believe that it is a mortal sin to identify with a gender other than the one identified on your birth certificate, but they have not one single verse of the Bible to be able to quote in support of that, not one. Paula, so um, let, let, let's, let's talk about uh, your book and your life. As, as I suggested earlier, um, you were on the other side of this. Uh, I had a couple of thoughts. Firstly, might it have been more effective if you'd have stayed male, stayed in the church and, and fought from within rather than sort of definitionally excluding yourself? Uh, 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 and secondly, talk a little bit about your transition, not, not, not the physical transition, but the intellectual one that, that drove, um, drove your book and, and, and drove the narrative in your life. 
I think I stayed in the evangelical church far too long, honestly. My own position on LGBTQ plus issues had been firmly established. By the Why were you in it in the first place, though? I mean, what attracted you in the first place? I was raised in that tradition. And as I say in, in the first several chapters of the book, I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender. And I was terrified by that. No one really understood anything about that at the time. And so I felt like the evangelical church was a safer place to remain. My father was an evangelical pastor. Uh, we had five generations in our denomination. My brother ended up being a pastor. My uncles were pastors. And so it was in fact the family business. So it was easy for me to move in that direction uh, because that way I could stay in a world in which I did not have to publicly acknowledge the fact that I was transgender, something that terrified me at the time. When I finally did leave, it was because I experienced a strong call to leave. I realized that I was not changing things from within, that I was in fact not being honest in that setting, and that the best way to do it was to live authentically, because I do believe, in fact, that living authentically is sacred and holy, and it's for the greater good. Yeah, so and let's so talk I believe about I that a little more bit, uh, uh, Paula. Um, if there is a, a faith in this book, and perhaps in your life, it's this idea of living authentically. What exactly does that mean, though, living authentically? It's a word that gets used a lot. I'm not always sure if people know what they mean by it. It's become a kind of cultish sort of word. What do you mean by it? Well, I think that um, being authentic is, um, I think that's hard because it, how exactly do you find um, what on a, an authentic life is? I think living authentically is in fact um, a motion, a movement. And it's an attempt as you continue living your life to try to be honest and true to what you understand to be true at the, that particular stage or phase of your life. So I think to know a truth and to not live into that truth is not authentic living. For me to know that I believed it was fine to be LGBTQ+, but to not live into that was for me inauthenticity to know that in fact I was transgender, to have known that from as early as I can remember and to live into it, that was living authentically. How does that tie into Christianity, the notion of authenticity? Well, I think the primary purpose of religion is actually to help us learn to be human together. And if you take a look at when we took off as a species, it was when we moved from being a bloodkin-based species to a species focused on the tribe or the community. And what is it that brought us together as tribes? It was man's search for meaning. So I think we've been searching for meaning and community for a long time. My own tradition happens to be the Christian tradition. And so I've chosen to do that spiritual search in community in that particular tradition. And for me, that's, uh, that's consistent with uh, my entire life. And I, in fact, believe that um, that it's important for me to do that. So I do, in fact, lead a church in Boulder County, Colorado, Left Hand Church. And we're a church where, uh, where we're all trying to learn what it means to be human together and to figure out the meaning of life together. That, I think, is religion at its best. Paula, you, you quoted earlier E.O. Wilson, who, of course, is a very mm -hmm. distinguished uh, Darwinian evolutionary biologist. Um, mm -hmm. Do the principles of evolutionary biology, of, of Wilson, of Darwin, um, how do they affect or how should they affect religion to learn that we're not actually the center of the universe? How does your 
theory of authenticity force us to, to, to rethink the traditional doctrines of Christianity? Uh, again, I believe that that's something we do in community. And I think as we make more and more discoveries as to, let's say, just the existence of multiverses, uh, for instance, for the, the billions of suns out there and the billions and billions of planets that surround those suns that are in the sweet spot where life might exist. Uh, those are realities. And those realities cause us to realize that we are in fact not the center of the universe. And so how do we deal with that? I think together is how we deal with that. And I think also recognizing the existence of the numinous, of that which we cannot understand, which we do not comprehend. Um, I define God in a way that would be pretty consistent, I think with most uh, uh, people who, who are evolutionists. I mean, I, I believe God burst on the scene 14 billion years ago and all of God's complexity, uh, ever expansiveness and mystery. And uh, that to me is uh, what, what man's search for meaning is. It's looking for a meaning in relation to all of that. Yeah, you choose um, to quote John Donne, um, loves, uh, a lovely quote, uh, loves mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. For you, I guess, um, religion is essentially mystery in some ways. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, when I think of God, I think of, of ever expansiveness, which of course would, would be a, a, one of the definitions of the Big Bang. But I also think of God in terms of a mystery of the, um, that I think Jung called it, that our life is um, a short pause between two great mysteries. And so for me, religion is thinking about those two great mysteries that our life is a short pause between. What about God and gender? Uh, you have traditional Christians, evangelicals seem to think of God as male. Um, is that a, a categorical error, do you think? I think it is. I think there's a certain kind of magical thinking that the evangelical world applies to the scriptures. And I think that um, it's probably better off if we acknowledge that the scriptures were written in a very patriarchal age and that uh, we need to make our adjustments accordingly. So no, I don't think of God as gendered or I think of God as being um, both genders and everything in between. I, I think it's easy for me to think of God either way. You suggest in the book, uh, well, the, the, the subtitle of the book is what I learned about power, sex and patriarchy after I transitioned. Um, Suggesting, and, and I think uh, one of the chapters is uh, focused, uh, let me just find that chapter. One of the chapters focuses on privilege. Uh, life is easier for men, one of the chapters suggests. But you've sort of fallen into another world, a world of TED speeches. You quote uh, Oprah Winfrey, Cheryl Strait. The culture has changed. Um, Aren't you, in a way, um, as privileged as you were before in your new world? Um, is, is that inaccurate? Or do you think you really are being persecuted still? Um, persecution is a pretty strong term. I don't think that the world is fair for women. But in my very first uh, TED Talk, the one that's been viewed over 4 million times, um, I say that I brought my privilege with me when I transitioned, uh, mm. that I will not live long enough to lose my male privilege, my white male privilege. But TED itself that, is a highly privileged world, isn't it? It's a world um, for privileged people who broadcast to other privileged people. 
but better well, or worse. Actually, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I don't think that's uh, necessarily so. I've really um, met some wonderful people uh, from all over the world through TED, and I've been involved with both TED and TEDx Mile High, which is one of the largest TEDx's in the world. And um, I've worked very hard to have speakers over the last several years who do not come from that privileged world. It is true that it comes out of those kinds of uh, root, uh, rootedness and origins. But no, I, I, um, I think that they're very much not focused that way. And then interestingly to me, I've heard from women on all seven continents uh, thanking me for, for validating their experience that life is in fact easier for men than it is for them. And the vast majority of those do not come from a, a position of privilege. I recognize that I do. I recognize that I'm a well-educated white male in my background and that uh, as a well-educated white female who's been given a lot of opportunities and brought a lot of privilege with me, I still know how to control a room. I still bring all of that education with me. I bring the knowledge of having been a CEO for 35 years. And all of that makes my life much, much easier than it does for many, many other people, particularly for transgender women of color who are one of the most at-risk groups in the U.S. Yeah, you have this uh, interesting quote from uh, one of the chapters in your book from Michael Kimmel, privilege is invisible to those that have it. Um, do you think that's universally true? Do you think anyone who has privilege doesn't get it, don't understand how privileged they are? No, I don't think so. I think that there are levels of, of privilege that exist. Of one of my children uh, was born in Calcutta, India, and we brought her into our family when she was two months of age. And here she was, a brown child in a white world, an Indian child in an American family, uh, raised in Long Island in a very white community of Long Island. And after I transitioned and, and began to see um, really overt misogyny in, in many circumstances and more subtle um, gender inequity in other settings. She said, ah, oh, now you understand just a little bit about what I understand. Now she is in fact privileged in many ways. She was able to receive a wonderful education. Uh, she has um, a wonderful husband and, and herself lives a privileged life, but she's aware of her privilege far more than I am aware of mine. And I think I'm more aware of mine now than I was aware of mine when I was in fact a man. Uh, Paula, you, you mentioned earlier that you were born into the faith or the family business, and that generational tradition has continued. Um, your, your, your son, uh, Jonathan Williams, is a distinguished pastor. Um, and uh, the New York Times had a piece about you and him and how you communicated with him about your changes. In the book, you suggest this was quite traumatic and meaningful. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, that experience of, of, of having to tell your son, and not having to tell your son, but the experience of the conversation with your son who, who inherited or seemed to inherit your faith, your family business. And he did go into the family business. And Jonathan and I have always had a very, very close relationship. And I thought I was going to be able to live my life without transitioning. And so once I came to realize that, I realized it was time to tell the children. Up to that point, the only people on earth who knew were my wife and my best friend, who's a psychotherapist, my psychotherapist, and my wife's psychotherapist. I mean, that was it. It was a very small world. 
So when I told my children, um, Jonathan was the first to, to take his leave. Um, you know, I exploded the family narrative. Uh, nobody's prepared for that. I exhibited no indi indicators whatsoever to anyone that I was a transgender person. I hid it well. And so he was angry. He was frustrated. Uh, he was hurt. And he, I think appropriately, took off on his own for a while. And he wrote a marvelous book called She's My Dad. It was published by Westminster John Knox, a religious publishing company. And a lot of folks have been tough on him. They say, oh, you were really tough on your dad in that book. I don't think he was tough on me at all. I think he was just honest about how difficult it is because I'm not fundamentally the same person I was then. You, you change significantly when you transition. And some of those changes are bodily. Some of those changes are uh, the effects of substances on all of your being and uh, not having testosterone uh, changes the way you look at the world and the way your mind works. Having estrogen does the same thing. So I was not fundamentally the same person and Jonathan was quite angry about that. But we've always been a family that communicates through our difficulties. We continue to do so. We keep talking and we did. And eventually he came back around and the two of us actually did a TED Talk together at TED Women in 2018. Did you ever consider giving up your faith, giving up the family business, really pushing back? Um, you know, I, I think personally, subjectively, I've, I kind of discovered you can walk away from God. It doesn't mean that God walks away from you. I found myself drawn, uh, even after I had been expelled by the evangelical church and it was swift. I was gone within seven days from all of my jobs, all of my positions. I was on the preaching yeah, team. You, two uh, uh, sorry, you, uh, you, uh, one, one, one um, headline in the Denver Post said, Paula Williams from a mega church pulpit to the curb in just seven days, quite a dramatic <laughs> seven days, Paula. It was a dramatic seven days. It was, it was pretty awful. And so I was out of the church uh, completely for a couple of years. I went back to mainline Protestant churches that were affirming, but I didn't find their worship style to be um, something that appealed to me, and nor their hierarchical systems. I, I was raised in, with evangelical music, and most evangelical churches are independent churches that, um, that don't have denominational oversight. And so I I wasn't sure I was going to go back at all. And then uh, had someone introduced me to the pastor of a church in Denver, Highlands Church, um, Mark Tidd, their founding pastor. And Mark uh, said, you know, come back when you're ready. And I did. And uh, it was on Father's Day, actually, in 2015. And I, I felt the strongest sense that I was being called back. And when I say called, I'm not sure if that's a theological concept. I'm not saying it's a call from God. Uh, I think I have felt called three times in my life, a really strong sense I was supposed to do something. One was to transition. A second was to go back to the church and to that church. And the third was to start a church that I uh, pastor with now. All three of those were very, very strong from a very deep part of myself. So I think wanting to lead a group in working through the meaning of life together, that to me is pretty important. 
Paula, uh, you, you know this world better than I do, but I was struck with a piece this morning I found that 15% of Americans believe QAnon theory. Um, now, I'm not saying that all QAnon theory is rooted in the church, but they are entangled together. How disturbed are you by the rise or the seeming rise and rise of QAnon and its deeply conspiratorial and intolerant ideology? I am uh, appalled and in some ways not surprised. Now, consistently in American history, 70% of Americans have said that either a church, a synagogue, or a mosque was their home, a local community of faith of some kind. Uh, that's dropped from 70% to 47% in just the last 22 years. So now, for the first time ever, fewer than half of Americans identify with any kind of a local, spiritually-based community. Uh, I think that actually leaves them uh, very ripe for the picking of uh, conspiracy theorists and the like, or uh, any one of a number of hard or soft cults, as far as that goes as well. It is, uh, it's appalling to me to see how much the evangelical and fundamentalist Christian church has chosen to identify with QAnon. Uh, that 15% number is terrifying. I, I think that same article said that 20% uh, of Americans feel that it's possible that during their lifetimes, they'll have to take up arms within their own nation because the current government has not been duly elected. Uh, th that to me and how much of that is coming out of evangelicalism is awful. But again, it's not surprising because that world tends to create enemies that don't exist. Uh, it's one of those things that Wilson says, we don't get a hold of that, we could potentially lose the species. I mean, it, it terrifies me that we consistently have created these enemies that do not exist. Yeah, let's go how, back to, to, to E.O. Wilson or, or to your theory. Is it the leaders? Is it the white men running these churches? Do they have an economic interest in simply creating hysteria? Or are they insane or evil themselves? I don't think they're insane or evil themselves. I believe that they are living in a very, very closed bubble. I think the evangelical bubble is... Um, is getting worse and worse with the passing of time. I Even had I not transitioned, I wouldn't even be able to be a part of it any longer. I, I would have been gone probably uh, about the time that, that Trump was elected, if not before. Uh, I think that uh, power has a lot to do with that. I think they like their, they don't want to lose their power. I think you can see that as well in the Roman Catholic Church when you look at uh, just the debacle of um, pedophilia and how the church dealt with that. and. I mean, just uh, yesterday or today, the Pope has come out with a stronger language on how to deal with priests, really. I mean, it's it, till now, it's taken you till now. I, I think when the stay's said and done, it's about retaining power. You mentioned Trump early. I don't want to turn this into a Trump conversation, but it seems to me, maybe as an outsider, that there is nobody more Ill irreligious, nobody more distant from any kind of God than Donald Trump. What is it about Trump that seems to inflame uh, certain evangelical groups and, 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 and foster such support within QAnon? He was expedient. Uh, he was not a liberal. And I think that's really all that mattered. I, I know most of my uh, former friends who are evangelicals are more interested in Supreme Court justices than anything else. So they didn't care about his morals. 
uh, they mostly cared that he was going or to... Or his lack of morals, up, I think, more than his morals. Right? Or, well, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it'd be hard to identify any moral standard by which he operates, I'm afraid, at least from a public perspective. Um, but yeah, I think that they, they were willing to uh, trade their souls uh, for... Um, you know, for a, a bowl of porridge. I, I think they wanted a particular kind of judiciary and thought that uh, Trump was the way to get there. Paula, let's end where we began with Joe Biden. Um, I don't think there's anyone here who would argue against him being a, somebody who believes in reconciliation and bringing people back together. As I said at the beginning, it's June 1. And today he is recognizing and, and celebrating LGBTQ Pride Month. And he's saying that um, he's pledging more protection, but we need more protection rather than protection, which, of course, we need. We need people to be brought back together. You as a theologian, as an active person within a church or an expert in that, how are we going to do it? How are we going to actually come back together rather than exaggerating these divisions? I believe it's primarily through narrative. I think it's through telling stories and listening to each other's stories. I think it's through sitting on on the front porch and talking and listening. Uh, I go into conservative religious environments whenever I can because I want those people to hear my story. And I believe if they hear my story, it might resonate with parts of their story. It's why I wrote my memoir. I feel like it's the best opportunity we have uh, to hear one another's stories and to get closer than the rhetoric that at this point is is, uh, dividing us. That's one of the reasons I was supportive of, uh, of Biden. I was thrilled to be asked to participate in his inaugural prayer service um, because I, I believe that we do, in fact, I, I think our nation's future depends on the ability to hear one another's stories and to come back together instead of the horrible polarization we're experiencing. Well, there you have it. Paula Stone-Williams uh, believes in telling stories. Her new story, As a Woman, What I Learned from Power, Sex, and patriarchy after I transitioned. Um, it's just out. It's out today. It's it's an excellent read. Deeply personal. Very, very engaging. Very lucid. Very emotional. Congratulations, Paula, on the book. You, I know you're uh, you're still in uh, some somewhere outside uh, Boulder, Colorado today in these strange times, post COVID or almost post COVID, where we can't quite go out yet. In addition to your new book, which everyone needs to read, what else should people be reading? Uh, I think right now, I, I'm uh, currently reading, um, and it's funny, I always forget titles because I read them on my phone now instead of looking at the book, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I'm really enjoying that. And everything that I was talking about in terms of the polarization in our nation, I think Colin Woodard's American Nations is an excellent book, talking about the 11 different groups that actually formed America and how those groups are actually still functioning in our nation. Well, Paula Stone-Williams, keep telling stories. I think your story is particularly important and relevant to many people, both men and women, both privileged and underprivileged. Congratulations. Thank you so much and best of luck and keep well. We'll have to have you back on the show again uh, to talk more about these incredibly important issues. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me.